Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. moved it from my back pocket to my right. Uh, one of the beautiful things as we're, we're singing these songs and things is um, as we're in this season of Lent, um, the, the culmination of the season of Lent is, is the cross and this um, absorption by God himself of all pain and suffering and sin. that we can't handle and that we can't carry. I want to encourage you to hear past uh, the passage today, to not hear narrowly, but to hear broadly, and to think about the implications of the passage and the text and how we're going to talk about it not in a narrow way, but in a broad way. I don't know how better to say it as we, as we begin here this morning. Um, but I'll begin with this question, uh, and you don't need to respond to this, but I wonder how many of us have heard uh, Christians or fellow followers of Jesus use the terms holy and righteous anger. Uh, within the last few years, I've heard this term used uh, quite a bit uh, by Christians in our community, the community where I live to confront something that they're concerned about. And regrettably, their method of confrontation is uh, less than holy, less than righteous. Anytime I hear Christians use this kind of language, I usually cringe because I feel like I know what's coming. Standing up to something that is probably worth being stood up to in the name of Jesus in a way that looks nothing like Jesus. The passage that we're going to look at this morning is one of the few passages that has been used to justify holy or righteous anger, or we might even say holy or righteous violence. And even worse throughout uh, church history, this is one of the main passages used to, uh, as a reference point for Christians to justify violence of all kinds. And so we're going to do a few things this morning together. We're going to read this passage, and then we're going to look how it's been used throughout church history. In fact, half of, half of the sermon is a history lesson today. Hang with me. I think you're going to find it interesting, um, because I did. But then uh, I want to look at contextually what's happening in the passage, and then end by hopefully challenging us and encouraging us uh, to live in response to the text. So here's what I'd invite you to do. Close your eyes and I'd like you to imagine this scene that John gives us. So imagine the picture. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. 
So he made a whip out of cords and drove out all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sell doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now keep your eyes closed uh, because we can often hear and in Phrases spoke differently, and so I wonder what tone you hear. Do you hear this tone? Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Or get these out of here. Stop turning my house into a father's market. I wonder how you hear Jesus' words. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. And I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and all the words that Jesus had spoken. All right, you can look at me now. Hold that picture in your mind as we go throughout uh, this morning. So here's a bit of uh, church history and how this passage has been understood within the history of the church. I want to give credit to Andy Alexis Baker at Marquette University, whose article, extensive article on this has uh, shaped the historical stuff that I'll share with you this morning. Uh, but prior to the fourth century, the patristic authors used this passage, listen to how, okay, pre-400 AD, um, pre-300 AD, 400 AD, how does the centuries work? That's 300 AD. Fourth century is 300 AD. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Prior to that, so that would make sense because it's before Constantine. Uh, The patristic authors use this passage to prove the divinity of Jesus and to talk about the resurrection. Okay. So prior to 300 AD, it was used to to prove the divinity of Jesus, talk about the resurrection, and then practically, uh, they also read this and applied it to not charging money money for ministry. Origen, around that time, one of the early church fathers, this is one of the ways that you can deal with difficult passages, you can spiritualize them. And so he treated this text as non-historical in nature and used it to spiritualize and just draw some spiritual principles out of this passage. Origen's view wasn't dominant, though, uh, and at the same time of Origen, here we go, <laughs> i got to say this in a different voice, cosmos indoculabilities, <laughs> there you go, uh, no, indoculabilis, anyway, he was important and uh, took this passage historically and literally, and this is what he said about the passage. He struck these as living but irrational creatures, driving also out of the temple even the things that were brought for sacrifice according to the law, which would refer to cattle and sheep. But things that had neither life or sensation, that would be the coins and the scales for measurement, he pushed away and overthrew as it is written. And he poured the money changers' money out and overthrew their tables. But the rational beings, the humans, he neither struck nor pushed away, but chastised with speech as it is written. And to those who sold doves, he said, take these things hence and do not make my father's house a marketplace. 
And so largely in the first 400 years of the church, this passage was not interpreted to promote violence of any sort. And this changed with Augustine. Augustine would interpret this text in such a way, and like other elements of his theology, they would shape uh, the theology of the church over the next 1,500 years. He still has an impact on theology as we understand it now. Alexis Baker describes Augustine this way. Augustine turned to Jesus' use of a whip to find ethical guidance on how to deal with heretics and schismatics. Here is an interchange between Petillion and Augustine. Petillion, arguing Augustine, said this, Did the apostles persecute anyone? Or did Christ betray anyone? But I answer you, on the contrary, that Jesus Christ never persecuted anyone. Where is the saying of the Lord Christ? If you receive a slap on the cheek, prepare the other one also. Where is the law of God? Where is your Christianity if you not only do violence and put to death, but also order that these things be done? To which Augustine replies, The Lord Christ drove out the shameless merchants from that temple with whippings in which connection is also the testimony of Scripture stating, The zeal of your house has consumed me. So we find, he says, Christ, a persecutor, Christ even bodily persecuted those whom he expelled from the temple with whippings. Augustine continued his argument. A boy is beaten contrary to his inclination, and that often by the very man that is most dear to him. And this, indeed, is what the kings would desire to say to you if they were to strike you. For to this end their power has been ordained of God. Perhaps we could entitle today's sermon, the abuse and misuse of scripture. This is often what we do. We twist scripture to make it say something that will support our own desires. Uh, Petillion was a member of the Donatists, uh, which were declared heretical because they were asking and, and advocating for purity within the Roman Catholic Church priesthood, uh, to which Augustine was more permissive uh, with what was going on within the priesthood. The Donatists were eventually persecuted so badly, physically, that even Augustine said they went too far. A little later, uh, at the turn of the millennium, around the time of the Crusades, Bernard of Clairvaux, whose book and writings I had on my shelf for a very long time, I think I picked it up at like a used book sale or something, never read it, and then began reading it, uh, and then this surprised me less, maybe, and he's advocated by some, but he says this to the Knights of the Crusades, with the souls protected by the armor of faith and their bodies protected by the armor of steel, he, Bernard, exhorted the Knights to go forth confidently and repel the foes of Christ until such a time as, by God's help, they shall either be converted or wiped out. Here's some artwork from the last millennia of what became the normative understanding that began with Augustine. Uh, go ahead, Caleb, you can put up the Ghiberti um, sculpture. This comes from the 1400s. It might be hard to see. You can Google it. It's Lorenzo Ghiberti um, from the early 1400s. What you can see here is Jesus' arms raised in the air with 
a whip in his hands, people fleeing from him. And then one of the poor suckers must have gotten struck by Jesus. He's on the floor at the bottom. This sculpture hangs on the baptistry doors of St. Giovanni in Florence, Italy. The next is a painting by Rembrandt titled Christ Driving Out the Money Changers from the Temple. If you can see, he's, he's about to give a good backhand to some of these folks. This year is 1920, or 1626. Scholar Michael Gorman says this, nearly all commentaries on John uh, compiled during this period tend to be indistinguishable from reworking Augustine's treatise, who dominated studies of the fourth gospel gospel for centuries. This is brief, but a very broad overview of how this passage has been understood throughout church history. And I think one of the reasons this passage is relied so heavily upon to purport violence and to excuse violence is because this is Jesus. This is Jesus. And so I I don't think this is the correct way to read the scriptures, but often people look at the Old Testament and they say, well, this is a particular God. This is a particular revelation of who God is, and, and that God's violent. And then Jesus comes and, well, this gives us a whole other picture of who God is. This, this God is meek and mild and kind, and he's my buddy, and he's my friend. But in this passage of scripture, which is pretty much the only gospel, or, or the only glimpse we would get into this in the gospels, we see Jesus doing something that feels a little more Old Testament-y. And then we take that and we're like, yes, we can do that too. Because this is Jesus. And because Jesus is doing it, well then, I'm Jesus' disciple and so can I. But is this really what Jesus is doing? And is this John's point altogether in, in, in giving us this narrative of the life of Jesus that is found in the other three Gospels, although it's right before Jesus, or as Jesus enters into Jerusalem upon his crucifixion. This one is right in the beginning of the Gospel of John. I'll talk about maybe why that is. But let's look at this passage to better understand it and maybe think about what it's communicating to us. So John began this, this, this narrative, this part of the narrative in this way. Verse 13, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And so if you know anything about the Jewish Passover, this was the celebration of the exodus from Egypt. And so this is when God freed his people from oppression. This was the Old Testament understanding of salvation. And so the Passover and the festivities around Passover celebrated God's freeing of his people from slavery. This celebration happened at the temple. The temple was God's house. The temple was a place for representing God's presence with God's people. It was the place the people understood where God was present. It was a place where sacrifice for sin was offered and that sacrifice was given for the forgiveness of sins to be received. And so the act of the temple was to remove anything that stood between the people and God. The temple in and of itself was a reconciliatory place. It was to bring the people back together in relationship with God. What we have happening here at the temple is significant. The Jewish people are coming to the temple to remember God's salvation, God's freeing of them from slavery, 
to make atonement for sin, and then to live in and therefore thenceforth with and in reconciliation and forgiveness with God. But when Jesus enters into the marketplace or into the temple, he sees a marketplace. He sees sacrifices for sale. And, and you know, that's, that's not exactly the horrible thing because for some it was impractical and hard for them to get any of their sacrificial animals travel all that way. And so there would be things that were sold there. That wasn't the issue. The issue was that the, everything there was corrupt. It was shady. And so you would bring your Roman coins, which weren't allowed in the Jewish temple system. You would bring your Roman coins to pay for the sacrifices, but you would then need to exchange them for temple coins. Skimming a little off the top here, a little off the top there. And the impact and effect you had was it made it hard or even impossible for even the poor to offer sacrifices. And so the system that was set up was preventative from, from the people offering sacrifices to, that, that were just part of what made their relationship with God restored again. Now, to set the scene even more, the population of Jerusalem in, in non-Passover times was around 50,000 people. Okay? During Passover, it was about 200 thousand so 180 to 200,000 people now I don't know how you picture the temple courts right I don't know if you picture them the size of our our foyer out there and it's just a small place it's a fairly sizable place but when something goes and a place goes from 50,000 to 200,000 you can imagine it would be in our context in our scenario it was it would be like us going to Lancaster County Central Market and that being the only place in the county to buy groceries Right? If you've ever been there on a good day, you're like this. Now, if that was the only place in the county to buy groceries, that might give you a, a sense of, of how packed this place was. And so Jesus enters into this temple. He sees this going on. And then verse 15 says, So he made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple courts. Both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. <laughs> this one verse in, in this context, used by millennia in the church to justify violence. Again, what I, what I think uh, we imagine and what's been imagined throughout church history is very different and miles apart from what actually happened. When we hear whip, we're, we're thinking about probably uh, uh, the, the kind of whip that has leather on the end, the kind of whip that Jesus was whipped with probably, with metal shards on the end of it. So there's this violent um, weapon. Problem is, there's none of that stuff that's allowed in the temple courts. You can't bring something like that into the temple courts. And if Jesus was using a weapon at that time, even if somehow he... He went around and he's like, oh, here's some metal shards and here's some stones and let's put this together and make this weapon. Rome would have crushed him in a second because they had no toleration for uprising. And so it's not just, it's not that just Jews who were in the temple, there's Romans all over the place. And they would have squashed that rebellion in a second. Here's probably what happened. There's a cow that's tied up. A rope 
is tying that cow up. Jesus probably untied the rope from the cow, took some of the straw that was feeding the cow, tied it to the rope, and started to shush. What happens when the, money, the, the, the people who own these sacrifices, when Jesus starts shushing them, well, they're running after their sacrifices because that's their money. I can't picture Jesus. Seriously, you got to take the whole picture. How can you imagine Jesus Christ crucified, taking a whip and just beating the crap out of people? Come on. We like to imagine that, though, because that's what we want to do. Please don't email me about saying crap. (laughs) Could say worse. Here's the other thing. Jesus wouldn't have been able to set every animal free. I mean, what we're we're talking about here is a very small act and action. There's 200,000 people about needing sacrifices. It is impractical to even picture Jesus getting all of the animals out of there. This is a very small but very symbolic action. One commentator, when it came to the birds, noticed that Jesus didn't knock over the doves because it would have hurt the doves. He said, let them go. Little context for you. So one of the most important things, I think, though, to think about is that Jesus, the Messiah, the Messiah, who is anticipated by Israel, does this kind of thing in the temple. Now, what would have been predictable is if Jesus would have done this kind of thing in a Roman tax collection booth. That's what they would have expected. That's what they would have wanted. But where does Jesus do this? Where does Jesus do this action? He does it in a temple. The people never considered themselves to be the oppressors. Jesus isn't justifying violence here at all. It's quite a stretch to say that he's being violent at all when he's literally hurting the herd. This act happens at the temple as a judgment of the temple, a judgment on what's become of the temple. This was to be a place where people met with God, but instead it became a place where hurdles were placed in the way of approaching God, especially towards the poor. I want to emphasize that again. That this place that was supposed to be an atonement for the people had become, the the access to God had been hindered and blocked out of greed and out of selfishness, out of power. 
And like happens in all times and places, the people who suffer the most are the poor. When we look back at church history, I believe that Augustine and everyone who took their cues from him find themselves in this passage and in this story as one who participate in the marketplace of the temple through their use of violence. And what I mean is this, friends, is that the church and whoever has participated in the church using this passage as a way to justify its own violence has kept people through that violence from access to God because who wants to have anything to do with that kind of God? How many millions, maybe billions of people over the years have been killed in the name of God? How many people have turned away from God or the church because of the bloodletting that has been done and that the church has condoned over centuries? And using the passage historically in that way, They find themselves, I would suggest, as ones that Jesus drove out of the marketplace. Jesus does not have any room for that kind of understanding of what he's about. Rather than associated and and, um, using this passage to justify violence, I would actually associate this passage more with the tearing of the temple curtain crucifixion. I think this has to do with access and God being ticked at how God's people are preventing access to God. Could it be that this passage is about access to God, about approaching God, and about the very people who were to help one another and the nations approach God doing the exact opposite? I want to spend uh, the last few minutes on this idea of holy and righteous anger because of how readily it feels like we, and maybe I'm not saying we here, but we as Christians largely and generally use it. And because of how it continues to damage God's reputation and the reputation of God's church. I don't think we can ever justify or use that kind of language, holy and righteous anger, without serious reservation and caution. So let's explore this for just a minute. And let me begin by saying, holiness and righteousness belong to God alone. Holiness and righteousness belong to God alone. Those who question Jesus, how are you doing this? What authority do you have? Well, Jesus is the only one who has an authority to do any of these kinds of things because it's God's house and Jesus is God. And therefore, this is Jesus's house. Holiness and righteousness belong to God and God alone. Friends, we, we just don't have that authority. You don't have that authority. Neither do I. 
Now, because Jesus is God, Jesus is holy and righteous. And so we can say on one hand that God and Christ are holy and righteous. And on the other hand, we're not. Hear that. We're not. We are made holy and righteous, but this is a work of God. Any holiness or righteousness that we have does not come from ourselves or our own efforts or our own claims, but through trusting and surrendering to the holiness and the righteousness of God, specifically revealed in the person of Jesus. Now, holiness and righteousness are things that we are to long for in ourselves and in our world. Holiness and righteousness are descriptive of the way things are supposed to be. And as followers of Jesus, I believe anger is something we experience in response to things not being holy and righteous. And this anger is gut-wrenching as we look at the world, as we look at injustice. We could name so many things that are not just about our world. And anger, I think, is a perfect response. But this kind of anger is very different than anger as the world experiences in vengeance or anger for being slighted or responding in fear or wanting to dominate another. We're angry because things are not the way that they're supposed to be. The question is, what do we do with such anger? I don't believe that anger is sin. But what do we do with such anger? And a crucial question in regard to holy and righteous anger is this. Friends, does our holy and righteous anger lead to holy and righteous action? Much of what we would qualify as holy and righteous anger don't even pass the Ten Commandments, let alone the kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing, has brought. So as we look at the injustices of the world, should we be angry? Absolutely. I'm ticked. Use other language there as well. Like... Just look at what's going on. You feel helpless because I don't know how many times I sit in my living room where I can have a nice quiet time with Jesus. But that's not, that's not the case for my brothers and sisters across the world. We're dodging bombs and bullets and malnutrition and corruption. I'm angry. What do we do with it, though? I want to give you two suggestions of what we do with this anger. Because I think it's real. Am I the only one who's angry? Okay. Here's the first thing, and, and, and this, is, this is not Churchy Answer 101. When you're angry... When you see stuff going down that's just not supposed to happen locally or globally, 
And when that anger rises up within you, you know what the first thing you do is? You whip out the Psalms and you start praying it. You let God have it. God wants it. God wants to know you're mad, that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. And God would rather have him take it out on him than somebody else. Half of the Psalms are, 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 are these laments and petitions and why? We pray it. Because in praying it, we trust God. We might not trust God to fix everything now that, I mean, hasn't fixed it yet, but I'm, I'm believing in an ultimate fixing. I'm believing in an ultimate reckoning when sin is done away with, when violence are done away with, when the powerful are confronted. I'm believing in that. I trust in that. I think that's good news. I want justice. God wants justice. And so we pray to the God who wants justice and will bring justice. But when we pray it, we let that anger out on God so that we do not carry it to our brother and sister, so we do not carry it to our enemy. We take it out on God so we don't take it out on one another. And I believe that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus as we give it to God. And so we pray it. And as we pray it, friends, we join Jesus, this is from last week, we join Jesus in taking up our cross. We take up our cross, friends. We don't put other people on one. The follower of Jesus is not meant to crucify others. We are meant to take up our cross and to follow. We focus, and church history, it's it's not amazing to me because church history is just kind of this, uh, it illustrates to us what we can do when we take God's words and want them and use them for our own purposes. It's not a surprise that we take this passage the way that we have in church history. But I don't think there's in any stretch of the imagination that that's what John had in mind. Because the focus of these verses, and I'll, I'll agree with the early patristics, the focus of these verses is Jesus' body and the cross and the resurrection. The emphasis has been put on the wrong syllable, right? If you take John 2 and these verses and the verses preceding it, John's a very artistic writer, very artistic writer. And so what you have in the, in the, in the Bible before this is the passage of Cana and the wine. Lots and lots and lots of wine. Lots and lots and lots of forgiveness. And what you have in this passage is a body. Lots and lots of broken bodies Christ died for. And so John brings together the blood 
and the body of Jesus in these two passages in a very imaginative way. But the focus here is on Jesus, is on the cross, is on his death, is on his resurrection. And this is how John closes the scene. The temple he spoke of was his body. That's the whole point. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus has spoken. It might be preaching to the choir in our congregation, but I don't think so because we're inundated with all these messagings. I would just caution any of us who wants to excuse our holy and righteous anger with unrighteous and unholy action. I would caution us. You're not the savior of the world. So if you feel like you've got to save something in a way that doesn't look like the cross of Jesus, you've got nothing to do with how Jesus is going about things and reconciling things in this world. We must not excuse holy and righteous anger. I don't even know if there is such a thing. Christ is the Savior of the world. And the way of Christ is the way of the cross. Friends, the way of the cross is the way of the church. Amen.